Hello, and welcome to this segment of Two Worlds, One Country, the show on WEHC and WISE-FM, and also on podcasts where we talk to folks who are working on overcoming the rural-urban divide. And I'm really lucky today to have as my guest on Two Worlds, One Country a longtime friend and colleague, and I would go a little bit further and call her uh, a mentor to me, Stacy Mitchell. Stacy is the co-executive director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and a remarkable group that's been around for a few decades. She is the author of a fantastic book, Big Box Swindle, uh, looks deeply at the phenomenon of not only Walmart, but other big big boxes and the impact they've had. And since her book and in her time at ILSR, Stacey has done many other things, including very, very insightful and impactful opinion pieces in major media outlets. Uh, she's testified before Congress. So she's kind of a superstar in the effort to relocalize our economy and uh, take on the biggest corporations in the world. And I am just thrilled to have you on Two Worlds, One Country, Stacy. It's so nice to be here. And it's it's been so great to, to know you and work with you over the years and to, and to learn from you. Um, and what a kind introduction. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'll, I'll endeavor to live up to it. Okay, yeah, it was a pretty modest one, actually. So as we always do on Two Worlds, One Country, why don't you start with just telling us a little bit about kind of where and how you grew up and um, what some of your big influences were as a young person? Well, I grew up in Maine. Um, I, I uh, Where I live now, my we moved here when I was nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not from here, but I grew up here. Um, and I don't know, thinking back on that in terms of the work I do now, there was something I think about Maine being very much a marginalized place economically and to some extent politically, but certainly economically. And growing up was a state that really had a lot of poverty and a very struggling economy. And where many of the industries that operated here were uh, fundamentally extractive. Um, They were about taking resource out and putting as little into the state as they could. And where most of the decisions that affected people's lives were made by distant boardrooms, you know, made far, far away. And so I think that that sense of being on the margins, as it were, you know, sort of informed a lot of, of my thinking, kind of growing up in that environment and seeing its its consequences. My, my uh, family, my parents and my extended family are all from the southeast, from um, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and I spent some time there as a child. Um, And so I have a lot of connections. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I get from that, except having a real, you know, having a lot of roots and a sort of deep connection to that part of the world. Um, Yeah. 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 Maybe maybe a comfort uh, or, or a familiarity with conservatives that some of my liberal allies might not have. So. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. And, and honey, you didn't pick up the accent, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, uh, let me tell you, moving to a, per- a parochial place, which is Maine, at the age of nine with a very thick Southern accent oh, was wow. uh, no fun at all. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, was yeah, rough. Yeah, yeah. So I had a lot of incentives to get rid of it. Yeah. So. And you don't have a Maine I, accent either. You don't sound like a Mainer. So um, but that's great. That's very interesting. I had no idea about your southeastern roots. That's cool. 
Great. Yeah, I think the the other region of the country, you know, you asked about geography, which I which I love. I always want to know people's geography too. Um, I spent ten years in the Midwest, in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, and um, that's such a, a great region in terms of the the history of a kind of progressive prairie populism, you know, and just learned a lot about the ways in which people historically have organized for different kinds of economic structures, including co-ops, including anti-monopoly, including fighting the big banks and Wall Street and so on. There's a really rich history, particularly in Minnesota and the Dakotas and to some extent, Wisconsin and Iowa. And I think I benefited a lot from that because for for various reasons, Maine does not have that same kind of history Mm -hmm. of responding in that way. And so Mm -hmm. I got a lot out of being in the Midwest. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, that is quite three three very distinct parts of the country for sure. When did you write Big Box Window? When was that published? Two thousand six. Two thousand six. So tell us a little bit about first of all what the impetus was for writing it, and then what the gist of it was that you were trying to uh, get across to your readers. You know, I when I started, I started working for ILSR um, in the late nineties, uh, amazingly. And when I first started working here, I was a, a research associate, I think was my title, but I was a researcher, and I was assigned to to research a lot of different things and and, and write about a lot of different things. Um, I did work on the you know, the dairy industry and stuff going on with farmers and stuff in the banking sector and so on. One of those things was this rise that was happening at the time, this huge proliferation of Walmart and other big retailers, Home Depot, et cetera. And the question was sort of, these things were exploding all over the country and, you know, were they harmful? Um, you know, a lot of some communities were beginning to question whether or not they should let Walmart in. And so I set off to do some research on that and wrote uh, a short report and a set of guides that we published. And at the time, if you were some small community somewhere facing a Walmart supercenter coming in, there really wasn't a lot of, there weren't places to turn to get answers to the questions of like, what is the impact of this? Do we have the option of say, saying no? How do we say no? You know, those kinds of things, there were really, there was no landscape of analysis or opposition really to, to Walmart um, at that time, a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. And so the stuff that we published really got a lot of attention and we started getting a lot of calls and I started traveling around and talking to citizens groups and getting invited to participate in a debate, you know, a community that was thinking about letting Walmart in and that the town set up a debate, you know, so being in these sort of gymnasiums with like a real estate developer usually was on the other side or some Walmart representative. Um, And I just started traveling around and I started talking to people and particularly talking a lot to independent business owners and, you know, sort of Main Street retailers and kind of peeling back a lot of, you know, hearing their stories and sort of peeling back a lot of the assumptions that we had at the time about how big retail was going to be great for consumers. And yeah, you might be nostalgic for the, you know, the downtown hardware store, but really it was terribly inefficient and not the way a modern economy is. And we're going to benefit so much from this trend and so on. And that really wasn't the case. And I and I began to see that there were just these far reaching implications that Walmart, in effect, was restructuring our entire economy, not just retail, and restructuring how our communities operate in ways that were and are, you know, deeply debilitating and that undermine democracy. I also realized that, you know, independent businesses, small businesses, you know, had been characterized as being, you know, backwards and inefficient and all these things. And that wasn't the case at all, that there were a lot of ways in which independent retailers outperform the big guys. 
it was right. just there was a way in which our economic models just sort of blinded us to that our assumptions kind of blinded us to that but when you actually started looking at it there were these things that small businesses just did out and out better like you know just how no matter how you measured it and then the third thing was that this rise of Walmart and the other big retailers, this massive consolidation that was going on was not by happenstance. It wasn't the product of just sort of market forces, as people say, or just kind of some sort of natural evolution of the economy. That wasn't the case at all. But we had made deliberate policy decisions that drove the growth of these big retailers and drove that consolidation. And at any rate, as, as you can kind of tell from the length of this answer, traveling around and looking at all of this, I finally like, I, I found that I sort of had a book's worth of stuff to say yeah, on the topic. Yeah, and so, yeah. so I wrote the book in 2006. And I have my own connections to the book, besides the fact that I've used it so many times as a reference uh, in the things that I've talked about and written about. Before the book came out, I think, I'm not sure of this, but I think one of our early, if not first, connections was because I was part of a small group in my little town of Abingdon fighting a Walmart that had promised to come and, and set up a, a super center and started drawing on some of the early resources that the kind of the tools you were describing that you were collecting as part of the work for ILSR, Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And we, we won that fight in the short term. We lost in the long term in a way. We won that fight in the sense that we made our case uh, we had a, a wonderful free attorney who worked actually for legal aid who helped put together the, the legal dimensions of it. But the rest of it was <clears throat> basically just concerned citizens. And we got our town to pass a special use permit ordinance that uh, required several layers of action and responsibility and steps for anything larger than 50,000 square foot. And when when that was passed after an enormous fight, Walmart walked away, the the bad news, that's never been overturned. The bad news was that about 15 years later, they built a super center about, I don't know, a quarter mile from the town limits on the other, in the county mm -hmm. on the other end. And we weren't able to muster the same fight at that point. But but I do remember that um, those early materials, both the facts that you're saying about how the notion that bigger is always better, superior, more, more efficient, and that smaller means they never quite were able to work it out as a business. And we were able to argue against that in, in large part because of the materials you were gathering. There was quite a movement at, at that time. And I, and I remember those exchanges that we had. And you all ran like a, a terrific campaign that I think we used as models elsewhere along with the with the ordinance that you ultimately passed but there was at the at the height of all of that activity there was organized vocal visible opposition to more than one out of every three walmart stores that was being proposed and of course wow. walmart was proposing hundreds of stores a year so it was quite a large number of communities mm -hmm. that had risen up and and were you know trying to stop these things and, and a number of places that did laws some of which stand um the, the the ones that did them kind of statewide or regional wide uh ended up better off in the sense that they didn't have that problem of let's go to the town next door right um, right 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 or just yeah. out, just outside the boundaries yeah for sure and and the new phenomenon i mean not that walmart has abated or gone away but you've written a, a lot about the the dollar stores as kind of the latest um, edition of that. Tell, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, the Dollar General and Dollar Tree, which owns Family Dollar, so there are two companies and, and three brands, um, just growing like crazy. There are now more 
uh, of those dollar chains than there are Walmart, Starbucks, McDonald's, and Target combined. Wow, um, that just is a just huge number. a startling fact. It is, and and there's a geography to it because these stores they mass by the dozens in black and brown neighborhoods and cities, and in particular rural regions. Well, there you know you can drive through rural Georgia, for example, and you'll go through these tiny towns that have no other retail left, but there's three dollar chains on one corner. Um, It's just extraordinary. And so then there's the other geography. I sort of like to say like people, people either live in Whole Foods land, uh, in which there are very few dollar stores, or you live in in dollar store land. And if you happen to live in Whole Foods land, which is a lot of like national, you know, journalists, it's, you know, that sort of thing, you don't necessarily recognize how much of the country now depends for for their groceries, for example, um, you know, people having to rely on the on the limited packaged food offerings, processed food offerings at a dollar store for their groceries because they have no grocery store left. And that's the only uh, retail in their in their community. Um, these stores, you know, they're they're very much a, a product in a lot of ways of Walmart. You know, Walmart came through and wrecked havoc on the retail ecology, knocked out all of these independent businesses, consolidated the market, left major gaps, you know, undermined the independent retailers that were serving the very small towns uh, and serving communities of color, but at the same time didn't actually build Walmart stores in those particular neighborhoods either. And so just created food deserts and into that denuded landscape, the dollar chains have come like an invasive species and have just proliferated to to an extreme degree and with a lot of harms. Um, I think one of the things to underscore is, is like Walmart, the dollar chains use predatory anti-competitive tactics. Both Walmart and the dollar chains have gotten to where they are by taking advantage of changes that we made in our antitrust laws in the 1980s that basically allowed companies to simply, you know, to allow companies to, to use their size and their control over suppliers as a way of knocking out their competitors rather than actually competing on the merits. That's essentially what we've done. And the product of that is both Walmart and Dollar General. Mm. And I definitely want to come back a little later in the interview to the discussion about some of the changes in those antitrust laws and the the sort of extraordinarily narrow and one could reasonably say ridiculous interpretation that Robert Bork and some others pushed that became the dominant understanding of the whole purpose of of antitrust or fighting monopolization. But we'll come back to that because that's very important. And I know you're at the the front end of that curve as well. I want to ask you one more question, and then I want to about the the sort of landscape of big boys that have so hurt small businesses and communities. And then I want to shift over to talking about ILSR a bit. That's the question of Amazon. So you have Walmart, and now we have Dollar General, and sort of between the two, in a way, the the first peak of Walmart and the rise of the dollar stores emerged Amazon and and other online retailers, but particularly them. Where do they fit into this? Yeah, Amazon is in some sense a retailer. There are a lot of other things. They're a cloud services provider. Uh, they dominate that industry. They're, uh, they control a lot of the voice market in terms of uh, accessing the internet through the web and, and you know, your voice controlled uh, items in your house and so on. Um, they can, they major producer of uh, movies and uh, television content. Anyway, the list goes on and on, right? We can right. all list a million things that Amazon does. But really the way I think to kind of understand what Amazon is and and always has been. I mean, they started out kind of as a 
as a book retailer, an online book retailer. And, but that's a bit of a, that was the, the, the entry point for a, uh, for something that, that Jeff Bezos always had his, his sights on, which is really becoming the infrastructure for much of the economy. So, you know, Amazon is the, the, by far the dominant online platform for buying and selling stuff online. Um, they control about 50% of all online spending in the US. Um, and they have an even bigger share in any number of categories where their share is 70, 80, 90% of certain product categories. Effectively- now, let, let, me, let me pause you just yeah. for a second. So you said they, they control nearly 50% of all online spending. Yes, in the US. And, and Retail spending. So Walmart, which is a behemoth, its share of like the grocery business is enormous, but it's nowhere near 50%, right? Yeah, that's right. Walmart's about 25% of the grocery business and about 10% of spending overall. Amazon's kind of dominance online is is far greater than any other, than another, you know, retailers offline right. dominance is yeah interesting i mean that's when you it, when you realize that their dominance online dwarfs walmart's dominance in the rest of the world that that tells you just how how overwhelming their their presence is so i'm sorry you were starting to then say a little bit about that after i hope you can pick up your your thread after i interrupted you oh yeah absolutely i mean so they so they dominate retail <clears throat> but i but that really understates like the nature of their threat. I mean, if, if you know, Walmart has monopoly power and particularly in the food system, and we very much urgently need to deal with it, it has all sorts of harms. But Amazon is a different order of magnitude in terms of, of a monopoly power um, across the economy because they not they don't only dominate the markets that they're in, but they actually sort of are the market. They are the infrastructure upon which other companies have to rely in order to get their goods to consumers. They are the kind of modern day railroad, if you will. And not just, um, this is true online, two, two out of three Americans, when they wanna buy something online, they start their shopping at Amazon. So it used to be, if you go back 10 years ago, people would go to a search engine and they would type in, you know, I want running shoes or I want, you know, a, a, a particular toy or whatever. And they would get lots of options, including Amazon in those search results. Now they just go straight to Amazon. And so what that means is if you make or sell anything and you want to reach customers online, you either sell on Amazon or you forego two thirds of the market right out of the gate before mm. you've even started. Mm. And so they not only sell their own stuff, but they are now are this marketplace for everybody else. And so they not only dominate the market, but they set the rules effectively. They regulate how online commerce works and they can decide that a particular company, they can make a, they can pick winners or losers. They can decide to take your company, the business you've built and put you on page 20 of the search results for any reason that they want, you know, or, or no reason at all. Like they have this gatekeeper power that's, unreal um, across mm -hmm. e-commerce. And they similarly dominate the cloud market. You know, s companies now, they do their computing, they run their applications uh, at governments as well, you know, in the cloud. And so, you know, and, and Amazon's AWS is the dominant cloud provider. So again, they have this infrastructure that other companies rely on uh, in multiple ways. And you, you know, you can go on and look at other aspects. They're now building out this, they have built out this massive logistics, shipping, warehousing service, not only for themselves, but for other companies that's now bigger than UPS and on wow. its way to rivaling the postal service mm. uh, and per perhaps supplanting the, the postal service. So I say all of this just to say, like, as I said, you know, 
Walmart dominates retailing and that's bad enough, but this is something else entirely. This is a, a different kind of monopoly power and one that's far, far more dangerous because of that ability, you know, to control what other companies and other individuals are able to do and to really to, to effectively regulate. This is a, this is supplanting government in a way that's fundamentally anti-democratic. Yeah. And speaking of anti-democratic, like Walmart and many of the other big players, they're uh, strenuously anti-union as well, fighting that at every term. Of course, Starbucks falls into that category. Most of the, the big dominant ones are, but that's another element of how they undermine democracy right in the workplace. Absolutely. I'm aggressively anti-union and really driving labor standards lower and lower and lower in a sector in the, you know, in the shipping and the, the warehousing sector. I mean, they have, you know, we did one of the first studies on their wage impacts back in 2016 and found, you know, then that they, you know, when they went into a market and built warehouses in a particular region that they, that they not only paid lower wages themselves, but they dragged wages down in general in the warehousing sector. One of the things that we've, you know, we're starting to recognize more as a society, we've always, well, for the last 40 years or so, we've thought of market power, concentration, monopoly power in terms of the potential to, to harm consumers, to raise prices. Well, it also turns out that you can use monopoly power, market power to undermine workers. And so as Amazon has become this dominant player in the shipping industry, they've used that market power to drive down standards across the board. And, you know, it's it's concerning when you see, you know, UPS, which is unionized, the Postal Service, which is unionized, and, and there are problems with those jobs. I don't want to be, be too much into rose-colored glasses right, in terms sure. of the, you know, there are issues at UPS, right? And they're, they're maybe going to have a strike vote and so on right now. But nevertheless, uh, far better than Amazon jobs, far better paid, more protections, uh, a voice on the job. Uh, and one of the last surviving corners of the working middle class in this country. And that is precisely what Amazon is intent on destroying. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your day job as co-executive director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, or ILSR for short. Uh, I don't want to go, ILSR does a lot of things, so I don't want to go too, uh, cast too wide a net. But, but give us, first of all, a sense of ILSR overall. What does it do? And then talk a little bit about the piece of ILSR that you're focused on. ILSR was founded in 1974, so we're 49 years old this year and trying to figure out how to celebrate our 50th anniversary. Um, it's a, a, a national nonprofit research and advocacy organization. There are about 25 to 30 of us working here right now. And we uh, really have two primary components of our work. We work to, to fight and reverse corporate concentration and corporate control um, over the economy and democracy. And then we also work alongside grassroots groups and community leaders to build better alternatives. So we have been, um, you know, pioneers in the growing anti-monopoly movement and the effort that is underway at the federal level to resurrect and strengthen our antitrust laws and enforcement. That's something that we've been talking about for a long, long time, but has finally gained some real traction and real movement at the federal level in the last um, seven, eight years or so. 
And then we uh, do a lot of work on the ground in local communities. So we've helped hundreds of communities build publicly owned broadband networks. We work with communities and elected officials on been a leader on distributed renewable generation of energy. So kind of pushing back against the monopoly electric utility model and sort of saying there's another way to do this, which involves rooftop solar and farmers having some wind turbines and we can distribute ownership and the benefits of power production uh, much more widely and change how decision making is it happens in, in energy as a result of changing its, its ownership structure. Um, we do a lot of work on composting and the waste sector and we do work on banking, uh, pharmacy. We've been doing a lot of work, as, as you maybe could tell, and, and when we were ch chatting a little bit about groceries and dollar store, or Walmart and dollar stores, we do a lot of work on the grocery sector, working with communities to write ordinances to limit the proliferation of the dollar chains, and at the same time to create new locally owned community serving uh, grocery stores. I would think that having your your feet very much in both worlds, which is not normal. It's usually the, th <laughs> the, th the think tanks, the think tanks and the academic institutions and whatnot that promulgate, you know, ideas and write papers and do research and, and sometimes very good quality, but usually without a great deal of grounding in the community. And then on the other hand, there's groups like some of the ones I've started and a lot of the people you've worked with over the years who are 100% focused locally, but rarely have the time or energy or even the foresight to kind of think bigger in uh, regards to public policy or national level things. And because you all are doing both and have staff doing both, I would I would assume they there's synergy there, that they help each other, they inform each other. That's such a great, I so appreciate that observation. And I, and I think it's true. We, it's unusual. Um, I used to worry that it was a little schizophrenic to try to do both or, um, but, but have really realized that it's actually, it's a huge part of our strength because when we're doing the federal advocacy work, we are drawing from what we've learned on the ground and we're, we're able to bring and engage a whole set of grassroots folks into that advocacy, which is incredibly powerful uh, in Congress. You know, we've learned doing some of the work we've been doing on, on trying to roll back the power of the big tech companies that even though we're much smaller and have much less of a DC presence than other groups that allies that we're working alongside of, we're often hitting well above our weight because we're coming into those meetings with members of Congress, with folks from their district, yeah. um, business owners and others who can talk about something that, you know, antitrust and big tech, it can seem very abstract. Sure and ha people who can bring it down to the concrete level. So it's really effective in that way. And then it goes in the other direction as well, which is that this is the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We are big believers in the idea of communities taking charge of their of their own future and, uh, and exercising. There's a lot of authority and possibility at the local and regional level that you know, we well, big part of what we do is like sort of spread those ideas and, and encourage people to take hold of that authority and to use it. And that's fantastic. But I am deeply a believer that we're not going to win that way. You know, I mean, and I think when we think back to Abingdon, your story about Abingdon and, and Walmart, it's a good example. Like a community can win the fight in a way, but it's often temporary or limited and it's not enough to really overcome. And so we got to change federal antitrust laws. We got to change federal corporate tax policy, 
we had to change these structural things. And so the work that's happening at the local level to rebuild our communities, instead of it being a constant uphill fight that where we may have some wins, but we're mostly losing ground. If we can change those bigger structures, then it can become like a downhill fight and those wins can get some real momentum. Right, um, right. And so when we're doing the local work, we're bringing that bigger analysis, which I think is uh, also lends something uh, different uh, and, and maybe helpful. That's great. You're listening to Two Worlds, One Country. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and I'm here today with my dear friend and colleague, Stacy Mitchell, the executive, co-executive director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This has been part one of a two-part show with Stacy, in which we're exploring particularly the role of small independent businesses, their fight against monopolization and corporate control. And in part two, you'll hear us move that conversation into some of the political dimensions.